Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If we really are worried about all these planetary issues uh, and the the climate changing and all these things, like let's not make it us versus them. Like let's foster this communal appreciation for the natural world and and let's let's change the the look of the people on these expeditions like let's make it so everybody has a seat at the table Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with JJ Kelly. JJ is a highly celebrated director and documentary filmmaker. He's a small town American boy who fell into the world of adventure by accident and he's gone on to travel the world telling stories that matter. His CV is mind-blowing and he's worked extensively for some of the biggest outlets on the planet, including working regularly with National Geographic as a director and senior creative. I've admired JJ for a while and it was a real joy to sit down with him and talk about his life, his work and his motivations. Um, They say you should never meet your heroes, but I do tend to disagree. JJ is as down to earth and kind as he is talented and successful and I hope I managed to avoid being too much of a fanboy. Okay, over to JJ Kelly. So I guess we'll start in the most logical place to start, which is um, if you could just introduce yourself and tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, Matt. Yeah, my name's JJ Kelly, and I am a filmmaker. I specialize in the outdoors and traveling to various countries around the world and been doing it for about 20 years now. And where did that all begin? Hmm. So, yeah, I I guess like a lot of people, you know, I I went to school and I felt like after high school, you you go to college and you you get a job and, and, you know, that's that's life. And and you start to tick off these milestones. So I did that. I graduated from high school and then I, I went to a year of college. And then there was a point in that year where I was like, do I really want to do this? Life seems pretty long. Uh, do I really want to do this? So I didn't know. And I, uh, I quit, I quit college and, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew that I liked to be outside and I had a pickup truck at the time and I threw everything in that pickup truck and I ended up just driving up to Alaska one June afternoon. Why Alaska? Yeah, I guess why Alaska? It's a good question. It just seemed like kind of this ultimate playground for adventure. I guess that's what, what I would say, you know, to sound cool. But I think in reality, 
I grew up in, in Minnesota, which is the very center of the United States, like on the northern side. And um, I had very little exposure to the world, you know, which is, is kind of wild because I've, I've had the good fortune to go to over 100 or so countries today. But when I was growing up, like I grew up in a town of less than a thousand people. And, you know, there was like a vortex around that town. Like you don't leave, like you're born there, you kind of stay there. And, and that's, it's a great thing. It's a beautiful town. It's, it's got a lot of nature. I grew up on a farm, but you don't really get much exposure to the outside world, especially, you know, 20 years ago before social media and the rise of the internet and all that stuff. So I remember I worked in a kitchen in high school and this guy, Earl, who worked the grill in that kitchen, he, uh, he said, you know, I would like to take an RV and drive up to Alaska. And, you know, just what an idiot I was, am. I kind of only knew Alaska from the map that we get on the weather in the United States, which has like the continental United States, the 48 states, and then like Hawaii and Alaska are like down in the corner because it's so big, you can't connect them. So I stupidly thought like Alaska was maybe an island or I didn't, I didn't think you could drive. I never thought that you could drive to Alaska before. That just seemed crazy to me. So I remember like taking that bit of information from Earl and thinking like, that sounds kind of cool. So that the, two years later, when I quit college, I was like, maybe I'll drive up to Alaska. <laughs> so that's what I did. And I can kind of sense where this is going, I think, but what was the plan? You know, I didn't really have a plan. I, I wanted to have a plan. I, I reached out to, uh, I knew I wanted to be outside. That seemed very exciting to me. I like to be in the outdoors. And I found a guiding company up there. I actually had been um, sea kayaking, even though there's no sea in, in Minnesota. I, I bought a, like a lake kayak, like a 16 foot kayak. And I would paddle around this river where I grew up all the time. And so I thought I was a pretty good kayaker. Um, so I found this adventure company up in Alaska and they did guiding trips. And I said, hey, I would love to be a sea kayak instructor. And they're like, well, you know, have you ever kayaked in the wilderness or by glaciers or with brown bears? Or do you have any accreditation with any organizations? And I was like, no to all those things. <laughs> Resounding no across the board. There, and they said, okay, well, you're not, you're not really qualified. Um, I said, well, what else do you guys do? And they said, well, we have a campground. And part of the campground is, you know, like, we got to keep it clean. We got to clean up garbage and stuff like that. And then we launch boats in and out of the ocean. And because the tide is very strong here, we use a tractor to do that. And I grew up on a farm and I was like, oh, what kind of tractor do you have? And it was the same tractor that we had on our farm. So I said, I'm, I'm qualified to do that. I had, we have that same tractor. And they said, well, we're not really looking to hire anybody. So before I went up, I said, how about, let's just settle here. How about I volunteer for you for like 10 hours a week? And then I can get a place, you know, to, to camp and, and eventually maybe get an, a job there. And then in the meantime, because I knew how to work in kitchens, I would get a job, you know, as some kind of prep cook at a local kitchen. And, and that's that's what I did. I drove up there. And I remember when I pulled up, to the end of the road, I drove as far as I could, about 5,000 miles from Minnesota to Alaska. And then the road ended and it just became the Pacific Ocean. And the midnight sun was out and there were all these people that were working at this outfitter. And it was like one in the morning 
and it was it was full daylight and i remember like they were they were naked they were they were like the people that worked there were naked and they were wrestling in the beach and i thought this place is amazing i I need more of this in my life (laughs) so i i ended up you know working in that kitchen for a little while and then a job opened up where i worked on the, the campground staff and then i would help out on the kayaking trips and then the next year I came back and I was a, a kayak instructor and it was like a dream come true for me. And how old um, did you say you were during that time? I was 19 years old at the time. Yeah. And what, I mean, what did that do to you as a person? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it just opened up the reality that there are other possibilities in life. You know, the way that I grew up, it always seemed that, you know, if you went to college then you got, you know, a decent job and you had a place in the suburbs and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But there was just a path that you had to follow to be successful. If you didn't follow that path, you were kind of a dropout loser. Um, but you couldn't be successful unless, you know, you you had a family right away and had some kids right away and just started to, you know, check off those milestones. You get married, you have kids they go to school, they graduate, and then, and then you die, right? I don't know. <laughs> no, there's, and again, there's like nothing wrong with, with all that. That's totally cool, and there's a lot of happiness in it. But for me, you know, until I went up to Alaska, it just didn't seem like that was a viable option for life. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's the simplest question in the world, but then what? Yeah. So then what? So I just knew that I really liked the outdoors and that it made me extremely happy to be outside and that I didn't want to go to college at the time because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So one expression of being in the outdoors for me was to hike the Appalachian Trail. I read this book by an author named Bill Bryson, A Walk in the Woods. And again, you know, never exposed to the East Coast of the United States and it just seemed like a very romantic vision to take everything that you have, put it in a bag, and then walk all the way across the United States from the northern side to the southern side, celebrating the Appalachian Mountains from start to end. So that's, that's what I said I wanted to do. And I was very earnest and eager in, in making that happen. I remember I took about four months to make all my own food for the Appalachian Trail because you, you have... In the U.S., you can send material to yourself at any post office if you just write the name of that town, and then they'll hold it for you, care of general delivery, for about a month. So I made 22 boxes of food that I would have my mom send to me as I walked um, from the beginning of the Appalachian Trail to the end. And I took time to gather all this food. I didn't have a lot of money at the time. I grew up on a farm. and you know, I would do things like I made my own granola, but because I grew up on a farm and because I didn't have much money, I remember I was getting oats for our horses at the at the feed mill. And we had these beautiful horses and they ate very well. Uh, they had these organic steamrolled oats that we gave them. It was about $50 for a hundred pound bag. And I remember going to the feed mill and kind of thinking like, hey, I'm getting ready for this trip. I'm making all my own food. I've got a few dehydrators. I'm you know, this is kind of before the camping meals. I was making my own camping meals. And I remember talking to the feed mill guy and I was like, hey, these oats that we give the horses, they look real good. They're organic, I notice. Could a human, like, would I get sick if I ate these? 
and he thought about it for a while. And he's like, no, no, actually, you should be fine. It's like there's a little extra roughage because they're not as refined, but that would just technically keep you more regular. So I was like, well, that sounds all right. So I bought a hundred pound bag and I laid it out and we had honeybees at the time and I poured honey across it and put some peanut butter in there and some salt and some butter. And I made a hundred pounds of granola and I spent all this time just, just getting material ready. And then I, I made my way to Mount Katahdin in Maine. And then five and a half months later, I found myself down in Georgia and I'd, I'd hiked the entire Appalachian trail. And I had this extraordinary experience where I just met all these wonderful people. I'd had all these wild and crazy adventures. And I thought, you know, wow, somebody could potentially take something from an experience like this. Like maybe not everybody wants to go walk in the woods for five and a half months. Maybe not everybody has the time to do something like that, but maybe they would gain insights from a trip like this. So that was kind of the beginning of this idea of, of filmmaking. And I actually started the Appalachian Trail with a friend who got very sick and she had to quit. And I met somebody else on the Appalachian Trail about a month in. So I'd been walking with this guy for about four months. And then when we finished, we thought, well, what if we did another trip? And this time we'll just carry video cameras. So that was like the very beginning of like, I found what I loved. I found my passion. And then I found a way to potentially turn it into a job job, you know? And, you know, knowing the film world fairly well, I, that must have been quite a baptism of fire, just deciding to go on a what is essentially an expedition and filming it. Yeah, yeah, it was... Uh... Yeah, maybe a baptism by fire, but maybe it's like too young and dumb to realize that it could be scary. Like, you, you know, the failure doesn't seem Im impossible if, if you're just an idiot. So you, you just you just jump right into it. Um, but but yeah, it was it was a bit intimidating. Luckily, we found a filmmaker who was very experienced and we made a pitch about this documentary that we wanted to make. And he gave us all kinds of practical advice. And he said, hey, if you guys actually do this, you, you know, I'll, for not that much money, I'll help you guys edit this and I'll, I'll cut it together for you. So he said, but I don't want to have a bunch of crap footage. Like you have to do a decent job. So he gave us these practical tips. I remember one that's like so important as a filmmaker is just watch what you shoot. You know, he said every day when you guys are done, the, the, the first film that we made is we we had bicycles and we started in the bottom of Alaska and then we decided we were going to bike all the way up to the Arctic Ocean, up to Prudhoe Bay and follow the pipeline and kind of see the characters uh, that live along the pipeline and, you know, what the experience is like transitioning from the bottom to the top of Alaska. Plus, there just aren't many roads in Alaska and the pipeline provides a a corridor to make your way up to the Arctic Ocean. So that's that's what we did. And he said, look, he's like, when you're on your, your bike ride, the filmmaker's like, when you're on your bike ride at the end of the day, I know you're going to be exhausted. You got to make your camp, put up your tent, make your food, do all that stuff. But then I want you to watch everything that you shot that day. I want you to watch all the footage. I want you to put headphones in. I want you to listen to it. I want you to identify what's good and what's garbage. And that was such a helpful experience. Because it's so easy, and it would have been so easy to just bike for 40 days or however long it took, 
and then film every day and then come back and, and you kind of end up with a bunch of crap. Um, you know, like simple things like a wireless lavalier for audio can make a huge difference when you're 10 feet away from the camera or when there's a strong wind. It can be the difference between something that is completely unusable and what would become a great scene. So that's what we did. It was we watched everything and we said, oh, this is a cool camera angle here. And, and we also like what I remember, and, and this is fully a credit to the editor, the filmmaker who helped us out, Ben, is I think if we would have edited the film, we would have taken ourselves very seriously. Um, but he, you know, he found kind of the, the humor and the joy and the authenticity in the footage that I think if, if it was us evaluating ourselves, we wouldn't have found. Um, he cut a number of our films that we made after that one. And I remember one of the, the subsequent films, there was a scene in it where we were, we were walking through a town and we had these wireless lavaliers on that we were so excited about. And he and I, me and my buddy were, we were walking and we were talking about this town and, and how great it was and that we just arrived here and that we're going to resupply and everything that we're going to do in this town. And we took ourselves very seriously. And then we did it again and we did another take and we did another take. We had like seven takes. One of the takes, there was a guy that, you know, the camera was very far away. You couldn't see it. And we're just walking towards the camera with these wireless microphones on. And one of the takes, this guy comes up and he asks us like, right, we're in the middle of our little spiel that we're taking ourselves so seriously on. He asked us if we knew where the post office was. And because, you know, we got our resupplies to the post office, we actually did know where the post office was. So we, I was like, yeah, it's right over there. You just take a left and you go up the hill and your post office is right there. Norma's there. She's great. She's going to help you out. And then like, and then we kept walking. And then like in the dialogue, we were like, well, that was actually a pretty good take until that guy asked where the post office was. <laughs> and that's what the, the editor filmmaker chose to include. And like, for me, I thought that was really nice because like at the time it was Bear Grylls was coming up and like, it was like, survivor man was on and it was man versus wild and it's like if you don't go out there and if you don't get food right now you're gonna die and like we more took the approach it's like if we don't get food right now we're not gonna eat until we get some food <laughs> you know it's, it's like because it, it well i think what they did was great filmmaking and exciting and captivating but it also put this distance between everybody's ability to go outside and just experience nature without it being like a survival situation. And I think that that actually, maybe it's not what they wanted, but I think it kept a lot of people from, from experiencing the outdoors and the wild because it seemed like it was something only for experts and we wanted to make it just much more accessible for everybody. That's interesting. I think I was going to come on to this a bit later, but let's do it now. I think, do you think adventure is accessible? I think adventure is very accessible depending on, you know, what part of nature you want to access, right? So it's like if you, you know, I've, I've been down to Antarctica a couple times and like if you want to go out on the Ross ice sheet and put up a tent when it's negative 40 degrees and, and try to camp out there for a month, I would say that is not very accessible. Um, but you know, where I grew up, like going for a hike on a trail in my own backyard, very, you know, accessible. And I think it's just, you know, the kind of the baby steps of getting into it and not having a very discouraging experience. I think when you put somebody in over their head and you bring them, you know, like if I was to bring somebody who had never been in the outdoors on a 
a hardcore trip, they would have very likely not a great time and they would never want to do anything like that again, especially if you treated them like somebody who should know all these skills. Like, you know, a simple thing like, you know, we don't wear cotton when we're outside because when we get wet, we get really cold and we get very uncomfortable. Like, that's a very simple thing. But if you go like on a beginner trail, you'll see all kinds of cotton hoodies, right? And it's like, if they get rained on, they're not going to have a good time. So it's like, it can be accessible, but it really requires a mindset of, you know, you're not going to be perfect yet. Find part of this that you enjoy. And here are some tips to make it better and more comfortable for you when you go out there. I mean, I don't know. I'd actually be curious. Like, do you think, do you think the outdoors is accessible? What are your thoughts? Well, I I won't give you my long speech, but I think part of hosting this podcast is a, you know, one of the greatest privileges is I get to ask lots of people the same question. It's almost like a cultural audit. And, you know, I think there's probably a book in that one day, but I, I, I think it's really complicated. And I think it depends what we mean by accessible, because as let's say, for example, I'm not assuming anything about you, but about me as, as a middle class white man from England, adventure is really accessible because I can just drive mm-hmm. into the hills and put my tent up, even with little mm-hmm. experience. That's what I did when I was 18, 19. Um, but I think for somebody who's, let's say, from a Pakistani background who's growing up in inner city Manchester, I think it's much mm-hmm. harder because there are economic difficulties, but also cultural difficulties around, well, why would you want to go and do that? And that's what one lady who I interviewed said. It's really interesting. And I won't, you know, we'll drift down a big path with that comment, but I think that it, it, it comes down to privilege. And I think that that's economic privilege, um, racial privilege, gender, definitely. Um, Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a big complicated issue. But um, mm-hmm. I mean, car, mm-hmm. car ownership, right? In Britain, particularly, you know, car ownership is a huge thing, access to national parks. Um, but I think that's, I mean, part of why I asked is where I was going to go next, which is around, you know, the films that you've gone on to make. You've made a lot of films, but um, often you're telling the stories of people who, and if you disagree with this, please do who aren't necessarily adventurers, they're adventurous, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, yeah, and I, I think that that, for me, has always been, well, I know it's been very important in the idea of kind of breaking down these stereotypes of what an explorer looks like, what an adventurer looks like. Um, you know, I, I spoke at the Explorers Club last week in in New York, and you know, I, I talked about this idea of, of preaching to the choir, and I think that, that that is something that we're all too commonly making a mistake of, of where, you know, we make these adventure films, and the people that go and watch our adventure films are not only adventurers and explorers themselves, but their parents probably were as well. And, and we're really not bringing in new perspectives, new, new blood, you know, we're essentially just showing the the films to the people that have seen very similar films before. And I remember early on, like when we started making our films that we, you know, we, we submitted to the formal big adventure film festivals, you know, we submitted to, to Banff and mountain film and they said, no, like, they were like, no way this, this is not, you're, you're not serious enough. Your adventure isn't as serious. Like you're not a world-class athlete. Um, and for us, like that was kind of a little bit of a compliment because it's like, you know, and I love those films and I think that they're great, 
but I feel like they only reach the same people again and again and again. And for me, it's just like, you know, music, slow motion, ski down a hill, music, slow motion, ski down a hill, music, slow motion, ski down a bigger hill. You know, it's like, that's great. But, you know, you're not, you're not going to bring in, if you're worried about climate change, if you're worried about the, the oceans being choked up with plastic, it's like making movies about the outdoors and, and showing it only to the same people. You're, you're not going to reach the people that, that actually maybe are, are throwing garbage into the ocean or that are burning fossil fuels that could have an impact on, on climate change. Like Unless we have this collective care for the natural world, then we're never going to address any of the, the big issues. And, and shame on you for complaining on, you know, what are they doing to pollute when like you're, you're not really including them in your conversation. So for me, that's, that's always been, been really important is to, is to just make the outdoors fun, to make it enjoyable and to make it so new people can get a chance to experience it because it can be very intimidating if you're not in, exposed to it in the right way. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you've just said. I mean, I get quite passionate about it because it's, you know, the more I talk about it and think about it, and it's obviously what we both spend our waking hours doing is making films in this field. But I think one of the hardest moments I've had for my, for my not my ego, but maybe my ego, was realizing that actually as a white bearded bald man who's covered in tattoos, it's really easy for me to access the outdoors and go outside and, you know, get wet and cold and be all brave. But actually, that's because the people who feature in these films look like me. Um, mm. You know, they've lots of them, they're not necessarily tattooed, but they've all got beards and they're all white men. And actually, it was, you know, it was a big, difficult thing to to, to swallow, to, to realize that really it is a huge amount of privilege. But anyway, we're drifting down there. A particular path there that maybe it's a good one, but it's a good one. I mean, I, I think it's fair, and I think you know people that listen to this this podcast, and and I think anybody that's exposed to the outdoor, like that's the conversation that we need to be having having more of. It's like if we really are worried about all these planetary issues and the, and the climate changing and all these things, like let's not make it us versus them. Like let's foster this communal appreciation for the natural world and, and let's let's change the the look of the people on these expeditions like let's make it so everybody has a seat at the table hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, no, totally. And I think, you know, it's a nice segue to to talking a bit about how you got into this and where it came from. Because after that initial journey, I think, you know, I'd love to hear the story of the internship and the application and how you ended <laughs> up working so closely with Nat Geo, who are obviously internationally recognized as one of the adventure powerhouses. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's actually a, a good connection. So I made that first film, and um, and I actually did go back to college. I went to school to be an environmental educator at the University of Minnesota, and um, they didn't have a film program, um, but I was trained to be a teacher. I was trained to make people understand the natural world and, and their place in it and how to navigate through it. And one of the ways that I thought I could teach people about the outdoors was through filmmaking, through video. I'd made this documentary about biking across Alaska. And I thought, you know, I went to my, my guidance counselor, my professor, and I was like, you know, I know that this isn't a traditional path. I know that a lot of my colleagues right now are applying at national parks, um, in schools. But what I would like to do is I would like to teach with filmmaking. Um, and I had a very supportive advisor and he said, I think that that's a good idea for you. So I applied for an internship. The, one of the great things about my program is it had a required three month academic internship. And I think that that is just such a helpful pursuit for anybody as they begin their career, whether you go on to be in adventure or whether you go on to be in marketing or finance, whatever it is, like, I think having the opportunity to go to an organization, decide if it's a place for you, if you'd like to work there and for them to see you and your work ethic, like that, that is a tailor-made approach to a successful career, in my opinion. So I had this film that I'd made and I went to National Geographic and I said, you know, I said, hey, I'm so excited. Same thing I did with that outfitter up in, in Alaska. I was like, I'm so excited. I think that the work that you guys do is amazing. It's always been my dream to work at National Geographic. And I'm a, right now I'm a sophomore and I really want to do an internship with you. And, and, they, and I needed to do the internship when I was a senior. And they said, well, we still have three internship cycles before we'd be hiring for yours. They're like, why don't you stay in touch and why don't you reach out to us in another year? So I was like, okay, okay. But I really wanted it. Like I was really hungry to, to get this opportunity. So I kept in touch with them and I sent them, I had something to show for it. I had this movie, this documentary, and I sent it to them. And when the time was appropriate and they were hiring interns for this period of time, they actually sat down and they watched it and they, they apparently they liked it. Um, National Geographic, a, a different arm actually purchased the film and they cut it up in a different format and they, they put it on TV, um, which was really amazing. And like have your, your first film, you know, go on to National Geographic, even though there was just six minutes of it, it was still amazing. Um, and then they, they brought me to, well, you know, I had to bring myself, it was an unpaid internship, but I brought myself to Washington, DC. I showed up with like my backpack and my road bike, and I had a tiny little room and I was going to, I was going to be living in Washington, DC. And I was so, I was so excited. I remember to go to National Geographic and be an intern. And I was so nervous that the day before I started, I actually did the full commute to National Geographic, like all the way up to the front door. So I knew the next day there would be no surprises. I would be able to navigate my way there. I'd be on time. And I did a three-month internship at National Geographic where I learned all the formal filmmaking techniques, you know, you know what it means to have development, pre-production, production, post-production, post final finishing, all that stuff. But, you know, I was also the very, very bottom of the totem pole. And I was, you know, 
I was duplicating a lot of DVDs. It was the DVD days. And I was getting a lot of coffees for people, but still learning. Um, but I remember feeling a little cooped up in, in the office. But the internship led to my first job, which was an executive assistant at National Geographic. And I spent, you know, about another year in the office. And then I really, I missed kind of the, the outdoors and the adventure and the wild and actually getting a chance to, to make a film where you have an idea and it impacts what goes on the screen. Like in a big film, it's easy to be a little cog and, you know, you do your little thing, but you don't actually get a chance to impact the, what goes on the screen. And, and that's what I love about, you know, smaller productions is like if you have a, a little doc crew, if somebody has an idea, you act on that idea and you shoot it. So I was really kind of pining for that. So I, I said, I love you, National Geographic. I really enjoy working here. But I, I, I quit. And then I went up to Alaska again, and we made another documentary where we built kayaks out of wood, and we kayaked from Alaska to Seattle, which was a blast and, and a good documentary. And the amazing thing was that when that was done, National Geographic actually called me back because they saw some of the posts on social media from the film, and they say, you know, we're looking for a producer. Would you be interested in coming back as a producer? So I ended up doing that over the course of about 15 years where I would go and work at National Geographic formally, and then I would go off and make my own film. And oftentimes, by going off and making my own film, I would get an offer at National Geographic to come, by, come back in a little higher capacity than when I left. There's a real lesson there, I think, in confidence. That's the one of the things that really jumps at me. I don't know if you would describe yourself as a confident person or if you were then, but the confidence to have a role like that and leave it to go and do your own thing I think maybe that's rare. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think I just have a short attention span. <laughs> I don't know. Um, maybe. Yeah, I, I think I think one lesson that, I, that I've learned over the course of my career that I give as advice is, you know, a lot of people that want to work in this field, um, they want to be, you know, National Geographic filmmaker and go around the world and tell stories. They wait for the call from National Geographic to go do that. You know, I hear from young folks and they're like, if I get this camera, you know, if somebody gets me this camera, I'm going to make an amazing film. Or like if somebody hires me on as a crew, like I'm going to show them how great I am and, you know, and, and what a, a worthy filmmaker that I can be. And it's like, well, sometimes you just got to go do it. Right. You just got to pack up your stuff. You know that this film is not going to be your greatest. It, it might not be that great, but it's going to be something. And then the next film that you make, it's going to be better. And the next film that you make after that, it's going to be even better. So I think that, you know, that is something that has really stood out over the course of my career is like, I'm really glad that I took those chances and, and, and risked failure to go off and make my own thing instead of waiting for National Geographic to call, you know, a 20 year old kid from Minnesota who has no experience at all. It's just not going to happen, buddy. It's just not going to happen, you know? So, but it's like, if you go out and you make your own film and you could show like, Hey, it's not great, but I did a thing, you know, I think that that can open the door more and more. And that's, that's like the resounding advice that I have for people that want to get into this. It's like, 
don't wait for somebody to hire you to make that movie. Go make it. Go do it. You know, whatever it is, whether it's YouTube videos, whether it's an Instagram page, whether it's a feature doc or a short, go do it. Yeah, and I think that's true. Of, I mean, it's really inspiring just for me, you know, listening to you, you know, talk like that. And because especially because it's so close to home personally, but equally, I think that's true of whatever it is we're doing. I mean, in my own little world, whenever I'm giving young people advice, I always just say, you know, if you're not in the room, no one knows you exist. Um, right. You know, it's easy to sit at home wanting something, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just also looking at the list of the things you've done. I mean, CVs are obviously CVs and, you know, the, the about us page of websites are always the highlights, but yours is, um, I would say uniquely diverse. Um, just, you know, from the, the warlords of ivory through to explore deadliest catch. And then the thing that leapt out at me was the, um, the tomb of Christ. I have to know that story. If you, can yeah, share that. yeah. Yeah. So that was, um, a wild experience. So I was working at National Geographic on their Explorer series. And, you know, they have NDAs and you're not supposed to talk about certain projects. But, you know, within National Geographic, if, if you're on a project, like you can talk to your peers about it. But this project came around, something new came around and it was very different. Like they were very hush-hush about it in a way that I'd never seen before. So much so where they, they had a code name for the project. It was called project artichoke and i was like oh what's this so i had to sign a bunch of paperwork and i really couldn't talk about it with anybody in the office and there were only certain department individuals that knew about this there was somebody from national geographic books that knew about it somebody from national geographic magazine that knew about it somebody from national geographic live which is their speaking series and then somebody from the television and film department and that was me and and, and my boss at the time and they said so here's here's the deal uh, the last time that the tomb of Jesus was opened was about 800 years ago. And, you know, what the world widely uh, agrees upon is the tomb of Jesus. There is definitely some contention about this. But in Jerusalem, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there is an eticule, uh, which is a, a, a tomb-like structure. And within it is supposedly the cave where Jesus's body was taken. Um, and then since then, an entire church has been built around this cave. And what had happened is the eticule was starting to decompose. It was, it, it was just starting to deteriorate and fall apart. And because there's obviously a lot of conflict in that part of the world and in Jerusalem between um, Christianity Islam, Judaism, even within this church, which is a Christian church, there is tons of conflict between the Armenians, the Franciscans, all these Christian religions have a stake. The Greeks were in there and they, they all, they can't agree on anything. And so much so that they even have this very mundane task where every hour they switch roles with the denominations that come out and they bring the incense out first. They, they come out and they wave the incense. And the Armenians and the Franciscans somehow got the roles reversed and one came out before the other, but the other one thought it was their turn. And they started throwing rocks at each other and there became a full-on rock fight in this sacred space in Jerusalem. So it was like they can't agree on anything. So the, the tomb for 50 years... 
they knew that it needed help. It needed work. It was starting to fall apart. And they couldn't agree on it, couldn't agree on it. Finally, 50 years later, they agree that they're going to restore the eticule, which means actually exposing the bedrock where Jesus's body, you know, they say was was placed. Um, and because the last time they did this was 800 years ago, there weren't cameras around, obviously, then. So it had never been photographed. It had never been filmed before. And our group, you know, my team, was going to be the ones to go in there and to document it for the, the first time ever. Um, so, like, very confidential. Like, you know, we did a lot of filming leading up to it. And then when it was finally the night and they were going to do it, they closed the church off. Everybody that was in was locked in, basically, until sunrise. Um, they were gonna they were gonna close it at at midnight, and uh, so we all went in there. And there was a little back door where like we could kind of come and go, but they were they were very tight security of of who came and went. And so there was this woman who was running it, and and she said, uh, "Okay, tonight at two in the morning, we are going to." open the tomb and that's when it's going to happen. And I was like, great. It was, I looked at my watch, it was 11 PM and I had a crew of like 15 filmmakers and I'm like, okay, everybody like, you know, I want everybody back here at midnight and we're going to gear up and we're going to get ready and we're going to document this tomb being open for the first time ever. You guys go get some hummus and you know, I'm going to stay here cause I'm a nervous Nelly and the, the director of photography, he's, he stayed too cause he was nervous as well. So the entire, like 18 of them go off and they start to eat us some hummus. And, uh, and then like, I see this, the woman that's, that's running it come by and I was like, we're so excited for tonight, you know, like two in the morning, we are going to be ready. And she said, oh yeah, she said, uh, actually we're going to open it in like 15 minutes. <laughs> I was like, you're going to open it in like 15 minutes. Cause, cause we're not, we're super not ready for that. And she said, well, that's what we're going to do. So I start freaking out. And when we'd done a lot of filming up to this point, but for the actual opening of the tomb, nobody could be in there except the workers as they pulled away the bedrock and exposed it. Um, so what we were going to do is we were going to mount cameras above it to get kind of a bird's eye view of them opening because there's a really tiny space. Uh, so the, the agreement was that there could be three cameras in there. And the magazine, National Geographic magazine, was there as well. So like I run in there and the DP is there and I get on the radio. I'm like, put down the hummus. Like we got to go, come back, come, come back. They're going to open the tomb. You got to come back. So they're all scrambling. They're running back, but they're going to be another 15 minutes and they're, they might miss it actually. So like me and the director of photography, we go and we grab two cameras and we grab these like clamps and we go and we're literally like, like a game of twister, like stepping over Jesus's tomb you know, to be right and put our feet in the right places. And we're kind of like bouldering a little bit in there to get up into kind of the rafters of it all. And I looked up and there were already two cameras in there. And I was like, those guys, and the, the magazine people, National Geographic magazine people, who I love, had put two cameras up. But this was, you know, we, we invested a fair amount from the film and TV side to pull this thing off. So it was like, we have a little bit more skin in the game here. <laughs> and if you really need to, you can pull some stills from our video. So I was like, this is not gonna slide. So I take one of their cameras and I just take it down and I guys handed it out to them. I'm like, sorry guys, like you only get one. And then I took ours and like, I remember like he, the DP clamped one and then I had to clamp one. 
And I remember like being like so horrified by the thought of this camera coming loose and like being, you know, world news, the National Geographic camera like falls and gives one of the workers a concussion or that it like falls on the tomb itself and like we contaminate some kind of source or I was I was horrified. But luckily the cameras held and, you know, we we, get, we got the shot and they, they opened it up and you know, we were the first and only to this point to ever film the, the tomb of Jesus. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's kind wild. of, yeah. I think you might be the only person who's ever shouted, put down the hummus into a radio. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good. I never actually had, had hummus like, like that, where it's actually fresh and they put the lemon in. It's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I understand their, their point. They, they actually missed it. The crew missed the, the opening of the tomb by like a minute or two, but it was okay. We, we pulled it all together. As a, yeah, I have a friend who's been on the podcast three times who says, um, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face, which, you know, sums it up pretty mm-hmm. well. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, that happens so much. Like in, I think, adventuring, exploring, or filmmaking is like, you know, I think that's, that's what I, is really important is just to be ready, to be prepared, to be organized, because you never know how it's going to play out. And like, you know, a lot of times when I've done, filmmaking and you know for this event that's going to happen you get all your gear organized you get everything ready and then you just sit and wait for a long time you know especially i've done work in like um ivory busts and um you know, undercover work and you just wait and you wait and you're bored out of your mind but you're ready you're organized you have a plan and then when reality hits and it's different than you thought at least like you're organized you, you know where all your gear is and then you can roll with the punches um, because you're right, you never you never quite know how stuff's going to plan out. But like if you if you just say you're going to figure out in the moment, and you have you know have no plan A of how plan B is actually going to pan out, then I think you're likely to experience some failure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you've naturally segued. I was thinking, sat there thinking, how am I going to get there? How am I going to get there? But you've done it for me. Um, it's great <laughs> to talk about <laughs> ivory busts, and I think just what's really interesting about that project. Um, I mean, we'll maybe talk about it after you've explained what happened, but it's just the power of filmmaking and how it can really influence policy change and, you know, expose the truth, I guess. It's journalism, isn't it? I think it doesn't get seen as journalism often, but it is. Mm-hmm. So anyway, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love to hear the story of that project and, and what happened. Yeah. Yeah, so I've had the good fortune to work a lot in Africa, uh, across the continent, and I went over there kind of early in my career at National Geographic, I was like a associate producer, they called me at the time. And, um, but because I kind of knew the very various aspects of filmmaking from our adventure films of like, okay, here's what it's like to hold a camera. Here's how you hold a camera. Here's what it's like to produce. Like if you need access to something or you need releases signed, here's what it's like to produce. You know, here's what it's like to be on camera because there's only two of you. So here's what it, here's what that's like. Here's what it's like to edit. So I kind of was like a, a master of none, but I kind of jack of all trades, right? Like I, I knew how all the aspects of, of filmmaking and, and producing and, and audio work and all that stuff. So they're like, well, here's somebody that's pretty handy because he can do a lot of stuff. And they brought me over to, to Africa to work on an ivory film. It was a, a lot of elephants that were being killed at the time. They still are, but a lot more at the time. They were being killed for their ivory tusks. 
And we had a crew that we were over there filming in all these parks across Kenya and Tanzania. And then word came that there were carving factories in China, which is where most of the ivory was going. There were carving factories that would give our crew access to film. Never been captured before. Um, we had the opportunity to do it. Um, but they wanted to keep somebody or they wanted to keep a team were their words in Africa because we were looking for a bust as well in, on, in, on the Tanzanian side. So they said, okay, we're going to send everybody to China except JJ. And then joining JJ is going to be this on-camera journalist from BBC four, Aiden Hartley. And, uh, so JJ, you're going to film, you're going to produce, you're going to do the audio and maybe nothing is going to happen, but maybe something will happen. And we're all going to, to China. So they called up the journalists and they're like, yeah, we're, we're sending a crew right now. I was like, isn't a crew more than one person? Like a crew, <laughs> can a crew be a person? It's a person, a crew. But anyway, the crew, me showed up and like, I, I had all my gear. I had my pan cam my button cam all this undercover stuff i had my big camera for when we could film above the board and aiden and i went and we met with this um politician and we asked him if ivory was sold illegally in in his city and in his in the, the country that he represented and he said absolutely not and we knew that to be a lie you know we knew that there was all kinds of ivory going out of tanzania at the time out of the port of dar es salaam and um, and we said, so we had him on tape, you know, saying like, no, it doesn't exist. So like, that seems like a great opportunity to see if he's right. So what we did is like, we had all the undercover gear and, you know, it's amazing to, to think of the stupid stuff that you do when you're younger. But yeah, we said we were interested in the, you know, illicit ivory trade. Um, and we were, we were working for somebody who was out of, Beijing and we wanted to know if it existed and we kind of put the word out on the streets and you know over the course of about a week and a half we found ourselves in a in a room full of illicit ivory um, we we actually got access to the largest ivory stockpile in Africa um, working with a couple other government officials so we ended up with some pretty incredible footage and then in the end we had a film uh, that aired. It was a one-hour film, and half of what Aiden and I did together was the was the movie. So, like having really not a lot of formal experience, I'd shot thirty minutes of this show, um, and it was also a cover story for National Geographic magazine, and it did it did very well. It ran on the cover of National Geographic in about one hundred and seventy countries, um, but one country where it didn't run on the cover or it didn't run at all was in China, uh, which was very disappointing because that's where a lot of the ivory was going. There was a lot of misinformation in China about the elephant losing its baby teeth, they would say, it loses its baby teeth, and that's what you get is the ivory. Um, that's totally not true. They don't lose their tusks. You have to you really have to hack their face apart to, to get about, and the animal's going to die. Um, so... The fact that our message didn't get to China was was heartbreaking and, and beyond gutting. Um, so we kind of went back to the drawing board and we said, well, let's make another film. And this time, like, let's not vilify the market in China and say that they're the bad guy. 
like let's find somebody that we can collectively agree upon is a is kind of a wretched individual and, and is profiting off of the ivory trade. So we did some investigating and we found out in northern Congo there was um, a terrorist organization, uh, the Lord's Resistance Army. Um, Joseph Kony ran, he may still be alive, ran this group and they they did horrible, wretched things like create child soldiers, give them drugs, have them just decimate entire communities, killing all the parents and then taking the children to, to grow his army. And just incredible genocide across um, northern Congo. So we'd heard that he might be actually funding his campaign through the slaughter of elephants and by selling their ivory to make money. So we said, well, that's somebody that I think everybody can agree is a horrible, disgusting human being. And let's find out if there's any truth to that. So we thought we would employ the same techniques that you might find from like the DEA to go after a drug lord. So what would you do if you're going to go after a drug lord who was trafficking cocaine? You'd take some cocaine and you would put it in a bag and you'd maybe put some tracking devices in there and then you'd get it in the stream and you'd see where it goes. So we said, let's do that with tusks. So we got the Fish and Wildlife Service in the U.S. to give us some ivory. And we had these big elephant tusks that they had seized. And we went to this taxidermist who's like the Michelangelo of all taxidermy. Like this guy doesn't deal with like deers on your wall. Like this guy deals with Lonesome George, who was the one of the last tortoises from the Galapagos. Like he does the big stuff. And we said, okay, George, here we go. We have these real tusks. What we'd like you to do is make some fake tusks. And we were working with a software company out in Silicon Valley to create a satellite tracking device and a GPS tracking device. So it would collect GPS waypoints throughout the day. And then once a day, use the satellite tracker, which required a little bit more battery power use the satellite tracker to send all those individual GPS waypoints so we would know where these things would go. So he said, yeah, let's go for it. We knew that they really had to be perfect, perfect, perfect. Like if the weight distribution was wrong, if the sound that they made was off, like people's, people's lives would be on the line. And he made these things. And I remember I was living in Brooklyn, New York at the time, and I had them up on my roof and I was like having to move them around to test them out. And uh, we, we, I thought they were good. We thought they were good. And then we ended up going over to Africa to try to get them into the market. And, and we had to transit through Tanzania again on our way to the Congo. And we really found out how good they were because uh, we were, that's when we were arrested. And we, were, we spent some time in jail as ivory traffickers. We, we had paperwork from the Fish and Wildlife Service and National Geographic and photos of these things being made. But when we got to customs in Tanzania, they said, these are real. These are absolutely real. The guy that was the head of flora and fauna said, I've been doing this job for 17 years. I know fake ivory. This stuff is real. You guys are assholes. You're going to jail. So he pulled <laughs> us off of a plane and we spent a night in, in custody, uh, you know, which was, which was not the best night, but we had, it's actually, we, we made some friends in there and, uh, and we ended up, we, we actually snuck in some beers. We had, a, we had an okay time. Um, and then, then the, 
next day the embassy came and they they sorted everything out and we kind of got on our way again. But that was a pretty good indicator that the tusks were convincing. And uh, and yeah, they ended up, you know, the the film that we made is it's called Warlords of Ivory. It's also a National Geographic cover story. And the tusks made their way into Joseph Coney's camp. We found corroborating evidence that they were in fact, you know, using helicopters to decimate elephant herds from above to take their tusks and trading the tusks with the government of Sudan for bombs, RPGs, guns. Um, that information went to the State Department and uh, we presented it to Congress and there were some Green Berets that were sent in. There was a lot of journalism done by National Geographic, New York Times, a lot of other organizations and things aren't great for the African elephant, but there's more awareness and the numbers of elephants is actually starting to increase a little bit. So it's definitely a, a ways to go. But that story that ran on the cover of National Geographic uh, for the second story where Joseph Coney was the bad guy ran in, in China as well. And we're very proud of that. Yeah, that I mean, just that last sentence, that's what I was going to stick to, because I mean, obviously, that's an, it's an incredible story and an incredible project. But what is it that you get out of this personally? Personally, I don't just kind of selfishly like an exciting life. Like for me, as a kid growing up in a tiny town, you know, none of this seems real. None of this seems like even possibilities for me. And the fact that I get to wake up in a place where like it takes me 45 seconds to determine where I am, you know, that I experience so many time zones and so many different places. And I just pinch myself all the time that I get a chance to meet all these, these people. And like, it's, you know, it's really not about the money. We definitely need money to, to live and to, you know, to, to sustain ourselves. But for me, you know, nothing makes me happier than just experiencing the world and other people's temperaments and other people's likes and dislikes and, yeah, that, that's for me the holy grail. Yeah. And how do you feel? Because I don't know, I listen to you speak and you speak so passionately and so eloquently about it. And it's quite obvious that you're hugely motivated by what you do and, and deeply proud of it, as you should be. But how do you feel about, and this is not a loaded question, how do you feel about the state of the world and the, the job that we have in front of us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I try to be, I don't try to be, I, I am an optimistic person. Um, so I, I know it's easy to go down a dark path and, and be horrified and dismayed by all the wretchedness that's out there. And there is a lot of it, but I believe in the good of people. I think that when people do bad things, it's often that they don't understand somebody else's perspective or their viewpoint. So I, I think the work that can be done to connect communities, to connect vantage points is, is incredibly important. And yeah, there's a lot of sadness and I've done, yeah, stories on slaughtered wildlife and oceans getting choked up with, with plastic, um, you know, really kind of the, the saddest sides of, of humanity. But in that you do find hope. Um, and if you're not preaching to the choir if you're if you're trying to disseminate this information to new audiences i think that we do stand a chance um and you know maybe that's 
too optimistic and and it's not based in reality but that's what keeps me keeps me going you know the, the fact that you actually can have an impact and that you can change things yeah i don't know i th- yeah that makes sense to me we get to sit down and whinge and be sad or we get to stand up and get on with it you know mm-hmm. it kind of seems like those are the two options really um yeah we'll bury our heads in the sand which seems to be a common response <laughs> Yeah, that's maybe the most commonly taken approach. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you want to do with the rest of your career? Or the rest of your life, actually? Uh, That's a good question. I just want to keep doing this, honestly. Um, I just want to keep telling stories, traveling the world, meeting new folks. For me, you know, that's it. Um, family is obviously incredibly important and I've, I've started to find a bit of a balance in life with, you know, I'm not, I'm not heading off to Antarctica for four months in a row, like I used to, but you know, four weeks in a row, like, let's go. Um, yeah. And I want to bring other people that don't get a chance to experience the outdoors into those spaces. Um, and everything that I do moving forward, I want to, I want to change what the, the the demographic of a crew looks like, of the, the people that you see on screen. Um, I think that that's our, our only hope to making this planet a, a better place. Yeah, amazing. And I'm very conscious of time, so we'll cut to the cut to the finale. But um, I always ask everybody two questions at the end, and they're very quick, uh, depending on your responses. Um, interpret them as you see fit, but um, what scares you? I think what scares me most is misunderstanding of not understanding where the other person is coming from. And that can often lead to, to fear, to anger, uh, to violence. So for me, you know, it's just that idea of, like you were saying, of putting your, your head in the sand. That's, that's what scares me most when people choose to do that, because that's when they act irrationally. Yep. I can agree with that. Um, what brings you hope? What brings me hope is just all the amazing young filmmakers, explorers, adventurers, enthusiasts that I get a chance to meet all the time and to hear from all the time. Like they are light years beyond where I was. I was just some idiot that thought that Alaska was an island, you know, <laughs> like, like they're so switched on and so smart um, and, and so full of aspiration and hope and then i just don't want to do anything to diminish that only foster it so that's what brings me joy that's 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 what makes me excited brilliant i'm going to ask one cheeky bonus question really fast knowing that you're probably going to say i can't tell you what are you working on now well yeah so i actually am um just finishing a project right now i work mainly in the natural world but i also work in science so I have been overseeing a project on the human brain as we've interviewed 36 of the leading neuroscientists in the world for a exhibit that's going live at the, the Venice Biennale next week in, in Italy. So that's, that's what I've been working on, on next or currently. And that's what's coming out next, but um, and it's been amazing, but I'm looking forward to getting some dirt under my fingernails very soon after that. <laughs> yeah. Sounds great. Ace, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. That's been amazing. I really appreciate it, Matt. Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk or follow along on Instagram at theadventurepodcast. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and is produced and distributed by Orla O'Murray and Alex Hall. If you want to get in touch, then you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk and please do leave us a review on iTunes as they help us reach a wider audience.